So, ladies and gentlemen, let me welcome you to the LSE for this online event. I'm Robert Wade. I'm Professor of Global Political Economy in the Department of International Development at LSE. I'm really pleased to welcome Gillian Tett and Deborah Rowland to LSE today to discuss Gillian's new book called Anthrovision. Um, Gillian's position, Gillian's um, status is chair of the editorial board and editor at large of the US wing of the Financial Times. And she writes beautifully crafted weekly columns for the FT covering a range of economic, financial, political and social issues. So we are at LSE. And let me remind you, LSE got worldwide attention in November 2008 when the Queen came to open the new academic building. This was a couple of months after the beginning of the great 2008 North Atlantic financial crash. In the Queen's prepared speech, she made reference to the crash. And then she looked up at the audience and went off script to ask the question that went around the world. Why did no one see it coming? And that question became known as the Queen's question. However, a handful of people did make explicit and public warnings of a coming major financial crisis. And one of that handful was Gillian, whose warnings from 2006 onwards were based on her anthropological fieldwork inside of JP Morgan. And based on this fieldwork inside uh, Wall Street, she spotted the threat posed by the credit derivatives industry before just about anyone else. The standard macroeconomic models that economists were using, economists in the IMF, the OECD, the World Bank, the Bank of England, signaled no major problems ahead. Her book about the crisis called Fool's Gold was an eye-opening account of how it all went wrong she emerged from the 2008 financial crisis, a star, even a legend. Fool's Gold was garlanded with prizes, including the Financial Book of the Year Award. The book we're discussing today, Anthrovision, um, has also received very enthusiastic reviews. For example, Dan Daniel Kahneman, the economic psychologist awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics, described it as a brilliant book. Margaret Hefferman in the Financial Times said, and I'm going to quote from her review, we've been sold the myth that with enough hard data, that's the key word, hard data, we can know everything, but numbers can only show what is, they don't reveal why. Soft data, and she might equally have said thick data, is what anthropology reveals, the meaning behind behaviors, where data scientists and ideologists assert anthropologists could reveal. And she goes on to say one of the glories of anthrovision is that it never argues, as many do, that its way of seeing is the only way. It is a timely call for decision makers to wean themselves off their dependency on big data and embrace the full complexity of human life. All this brings to mind a remark of uh, Friedrich Hayek and the spirit of this remark runs through um, Gillian's book. Hayek said, quote, an economist who is only an economist is not a good economist, unquote. 
So lots of very, very favorable reviews, but I can't resist reading you a, a sentence from Private Eye's review, which was a bit less complimentary. Um, and the Private Eye review goes, quote, her book on the 2008 crash succeeded because it picked a clear target and went for it. This new work has no such focus. What we have instead is a directionless morass of anecdote and pseudo-academic assertion. Well, Private Eye would not be Private Eye if it did not write in such purple prose. Gillian will speak for about 45 minutes, then Deborah Rowland, whom I will introduce later, will comment and discuss some of her own anthropologically inspired work on multinational companies. Um, for Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is LSE more than money, LSE more than money. The event is being recorded, will be made available as a podcast, subject always to technical difficulties. There will be a chance for you to put questions to Gillian and Deborah to submit your questions. Please use the chat uh, function and uh, giving your name and affiliation. I'll finish this introduction with a pregnant remark that Gillian made in a YouTube conversation with Tim Halford about the book. She said in the course of this uh, conversation, quote, COVID-19 has made us all amateur anthropologists, has made us all amateur anthropologists, though we don't use that word. So Gillian, great pleasure to have you um, elaborate on the book. Well, thank you very much indeed. And it's a huge honor and delight to have a chance to talk to the LSE audience. Um, I've always had enormous respect for the LSE as not just a seat of learning, but in its role as acting as a crossroads for learning and bringing together many different disciplines. So it's wonderful to have a chance to chat um, or talk about the book with you all. And over the years, I've often had inspiration from anthropologists linked to the LSE, as well as economists, development experts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this book... Anthrovision. This is the English version. I should say the American version is rather different in another sign of cultural difference. The English version has a nice um, subdued subtle white cover with a picture of me sitting in a shirt on a stoop in New York looking vaguely thoughtful. The American version has a bright red cover because red sells to Americans with a picture of me wearing a red top looking like what we call a Fox TV babe which the British publishers vetoed immediately and the American publishers loved. Um, therein lies a difference between different markets. But anyway, the book Anthrovision really sets out to answer a question that I've been asked a lot during my last three decade long career as a journalist. I should say that all of that has been spent with the Financial Times um, in a variety of different roles and continents. Most recently, I chair the editorial board before that, I was running the um, news operations of the FT in North America. Before that, the financial coverage, the Lex column, etc. Um, and these are all roles which have taken me into the very core of the financial, economic, political and corporate world. And in that position, talking to lots of people who like to think that they are grown-ups, um, masters of the universe, leaders, mandarins, people in charge of the world. In that role, I've often been asked the question of 
okay, you're writing about macroeconomics, finance and politics and business. Why on earth do you have a PhD in cultural anthropology? Why don't you have an MBA or a degree in macroeconomics or something like that? Um, and they ask that question even more if they find out that my PhD was actually earned studying Tajik wedding rituals in Soviet Tajikistan back in 1990 um, in a corner of the world that most people cannot identify on the map about two to three hours away from Dushanbe, the capital of Tajikistan. So my book basically sets out to explain how and why this background has helped me in my career as a journalist, why I think actually it's a really powerful training for anybody who's working in the media, and why I think it's not just useful for journalists, but also can be useful in finance, economics, business, law, medicine, almost any field that you want to go into in the modern world today. And I do that because I think many people misunderstand what cultural anthropology is. Um, it's often thought of as basically a form of Indiana Jones for academics, basically an excuse to go after wacky and weird and wild places, peer at people who seem very different from you, collect a few colorful stories, some amazing photographs, come back, make a documentary, and that's basically it. And my message basically is very simple, that anthropology is a really powerful tool because it does three core things, which we very badly need today, particularly as we hopefully come out of the pandemic. And yes, we are sadly talking on Zoom. I'm very disappointed because I'd love to be in the LSE today. But as we hopefully come out of the pandemic, the three elements of anthropology, which I'm going to describe, are very badly needed as we try to build back better. What are those three elements? Well, one of them is a desire to embrace culture shock or to immerse yourself in the lives and minds of people who seem a bit strange and different from you. That can be at the other end of the world. It can be at the other end of the street or even just next door in a department. But one of the core principles of anthropology is that you need to go and look at people who are different from you to gain empathy for another point of, of living, a way of living. It sounds incredibly obvious as an idea. Um, it was really sparked the early years of anthropology back in the 19th century, often in a way that modern anthropologists find lamentable because it was wrapped up in imperialism, sexism, racism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm not going to try and defend many of the ideas that anthropologists were touting in the 19th century. Um, you know, they are were products of their time and modern anthropology quite rightfully shuns many of those attitudes and approaches. But in the 20th century, this idea that it paid to go and look at people who were different from you took on a very different slant where it moved away from this very imperialist idea that the point of looking at people that were different from you was to basically rank them, scorn them, treat them as a crucible to indicate how modern societies had evolved or otherwise control them. In the 20th century, that approach shifted to an approach of recognizing that looking at cultural difference can be very powerful because if you do so with a spirit of humility and tolerance, 
you can learn things about other cultures. You can widen your vision of the world. You can get empathy from another point of view. You can understand the glorious spectrum of cultural difference that both unites and divides us. And we need that very badly right now because we live in a world that is both very globalized and very polarized. A world where our global systems tie us together so tightly that we're all prone to contagion constantly and not just of the medical sort. We face contagion of the economic sort, the financial sort, the political sort, the cyber sort, you name it. But we don't have a contagion of mutual understanding at all. Quite the opposite, in many ways we have a sense of polarization. Um, that I would argue has got worse during the pandemic because we've been physically locked down with people like us, our own tribe, our own pod. And we've been forced online. And when we go online, we tend to not just take our own social tribalism, to use that word in a very loose sense, um, with us, but we tend to intensify it because our modern digital experience is really all about customization. Um, we live in Generation C. And by that, I mean that we live in an era where we assume that in our everyday consumer culture, we can pick and mix what we want. Um, think about music to understand this. If you dial back 100 years, people listen to music basically when somebody else decided that they were going to listen to music on the radio if they were lucky. And the selection was made by someone else. Um, 50 years ago, you could buy cassettes or vinyl records and listen to it when you wanted, but the selection was still made by someone else. Today, we have a playlist culture where everybody can pick and mix what they want. And that playlist mentality, that pick and mix mentality is taken onto all areas of our life, including our digital experience. And when we go online for our digital experience, we tend to intensify our tribal identities, if you like. We tend to narrow our lens often um, in a way that makes us more, not less polarized. So in a world that's both globalized, integrated, prone to contagion, and yet also increasingly polarized, having a sense of empathy for how other cultures live, having a sense of curiosity about what's happening and what we can learn is absolutely vital and often underappreciated. And that is one thing that anthropology absolutely could and should give us. But the second thing that anthropology can give us is not just an empathy and appreciation for others, but also an ability to better understand ourselves too. Because there's this wonderful Chinese proverb that a fish can't see water. We can't see the cultural assumptions that shape us so deeply unless we jump out of our fish bowls, go swim with other fish and look back. And that leads to the third great thing that I think anthropology can give us, which is an ability to see social silences or to see the parts of the world that we tend to ignore. Because when we live every day in a culture, we pay attention to what's noisy, we notice it. There's an awful lot around us that we don't notice. Um, the same is true of other cultures we may look at. And the ability to try and be a fish hopping between different fish bowls, getting that inside and outside of perspective, getting that broader holistic perspective is really, really important to see the things we're missing, to see our blind spots, to see all the things around us that are hidden in plain sight. So in a nutshell, I believe passionately that the discipline of cultural anthropology 
when pursued with humility, tolerance, and above all else, curiosity, can be very powerful both in terms of getting empathy for others and understanding ourselves better and enabling us to see social silences. Now, that all sounds very abstract. So let me quickly explain how I've seen this play out in my own life and some of the ways I've seen it play out in the lives of businesses and companies and the financiers who I've written about as a journalist. I started off as a fairly classically trained cultural anthropologist. I studied at Cambridge University and went off to do my fieldwork in very classic anthropology style in Soviet Tajikistan in 1989-1990. Um, spent a year of my life living up in the high mountain areas um, of Tajikistan with some amazing families looking at marriage rituals, or rather looking at marriage rituals as a tool to try to understand how the Soviet Tajiks had tried to blend their Tajik identity and being part of an Islamic tradition with being part of the Soviet Union, part of the communist system. And since I went to Tajikistan, really um, at the time when the um, Russian forces or Soviet forces were withdrawing from Afghanistan, having effectively been defeated, de defeated by the Islamic Mujahideen. Um, and at a time when there was growing interest in the Western world in the question of Islamic extremism, um, fundamentalism, and the anti-West threat that did or did not pose, the issues that have very much shaped the debates I heard and listened to before I went to Tajikistan were around whether Islam and communism presented a clash. And in fact, my goal in studying marriage rituals really was to look at the clash I presumed existed between Islam and communism um, in Tajikistan. Um, the CIA in the years before that had often called Tajikistan and Uzbekistan the soft underbelly of the Soviet Union because they had presumed that if there was going to be a rebellion or revolt against Moscow, it would occur first along the Islamic areas um, because you know they'd seen what had happened in Afghanistan, hence the soft underbelly tag. So that was the mentality I went into Tajikistan with, and I thought my research proposal was pretty clear cut. I thought I knew what I wanted to study. Well, one of the glorious things about being an anthropologist and one of the lessons that it can be applied to any area of business, finance, inquiry today, is that you don't really know what you want to study until you actually get into the field and actually look at what's happening on the ground with an open mind and almost act like a child and just absorb and listen and learn as much as you can. And it became clear, pretty clear to me um, within a few months of being in Tajikistan that the fundamental premise of my research was kind of wrong. Um, from a bird's eye view outside Tajikistan, sitting in Washington or Cambridge or anywhere else, it was very easy to presume that there was a clash between Islam and communism. Um, on the ground, in fact, what I saw was actually a pretty potent synthesis. Um, and the synthesis could be seen displayed and reflected and symbolized in a lot of the marriage rituals. Um, but, you know, to cite Pierre Bourdieu, that wonderful French um, anthropologist sociologist who formed a, the basis for a lot of my research, you know, the way we organize our space, our time, our social groups reflects a mental map and reinforces it by virtue of the fact we live in it. And what was going on in the village that I saw was basically a very striking public-private split 
um, which was kind of mirrored onto a very striking gender split. And to a large extent, the fact that you had this almost pattern of compartmentalization going on inside the village meant that actually the Islamic identity and the Soviet communist identity didn't clash so much as simply inhabit different spheres. Um, the kind of perception that actually is not particularly surprising to anyone who's worked as an anthropologist in many parts of the Muslim world or many other parts of the world. Um, but it went very much flew in the face of what the dominant theory was, as I say, in the foreign policy community. So I shifted direction of my thesis, as often happens in anthropology. Um, and at the end of my research was all poised to write what I thought was going to be a pretty cutting edge, insightful thesis into why the outside world had got Soviet Tajikistan wrong and why they weren't necessarily the soft underbelly of the Soviet system. And then life intervened. Um, in the very same month that I left Tajikistan, I was going back to Cambridge to write up my thesis, had started doing that to a certain degree. I got an internship at the Financial Times for a couple of weeks, just out of curiosity. The Soviet Union broke up. I was suddenly discovered to be the only person at the Financial Times who could speak Russian and knew something about the Soviet system. Um, I was catapulted and asked to become a foreign correspondent for a few weeks initially, um, went out to basically do a freelance job. Um, and then, of course, the Soviet Union really imploded and Tajikistan subsequently became independent and descended into civil war. So what had been my anthropology um, research turned into history, tragically. And then two things happened. Firstly, it became very clear that an awful lot of the predictions that the outside world had made about the area were indeed wrong. Um, Tajikistan, as I had predicted, was not the soft underbelly. In fact, it turned out to be the very last place in the Soviet Union to actually seek independence. The first places were places like the Baltic Republics. And so I sat there thinking, gosh, if only I had hurried up and ridden my PhD quicker, I would have looked incredibly prescient. As it was, my field work felt like it was kind of in tatters and felt like it was almost irrelevant, frankly, given the civil war that was unfolding. Um, but the second thing that happened was I became fascinated by journalism and realized that many of the same skills I'd learned in anthropology could be used in journalism. So I went around, I wrote a lot about all the various small wars exploding in the Soviet Union, um, and then went back and joined the FT. And when I joined the FT, they told me, not unsurprisingly, because it's called the Financial Times, that I had to know something about finance. My first reaction was, oh, how boring. But I was sent on to the economics team. Um, I was actually told to go and write the money markets column. Um, I did it pretty badly. And I sat there and thought, well, I'm just doing this out of sufferance. I'll get it over and done with as fast as I can. And then I'll go back and do something more interesting. And then I realized two things. One was that so much of my prejudice against high finance was driven by fear. Um, and in some ways, a fear that's no different from anybody who's an anthropologist going to a really remote, different culture that seems very alien to them. You know, this idea that here's a group of people who speak a language I don't understand. Help. Yikes. I feel scared. Only in this case, it was banker speak and econ speak, not um, Tajik. So I thought, right, wet towel over my head. I'm going to get to grips with it. And then I realized this really obvious point, which is that I've been trained in cultural anthropology 
to think a lot about political structures and symbolism and kinship networks. But I hadn't spent much time thinking very hard about how money goes around the world. And I realized that if you don't understand how money goes around the world, you don't really understand power. And if you only look at money in terms of how money is going around the world and don't look at the cultural and political context, then you don't really understand anything either. And I realized there weren't many people who were trying to blend the two. There are more today. Um, Robert's one of them. Um, but I realized that actually trying to blend a, an understanding of hardcore finance with a cultural context with a or rather an appreciation for cultural context could be a really exciting thing to do. So that's kind of what I decided to try and do in my career as a journalist. Um, I did go back and finish my PhD because actually I really wanted to. I felt I owed it to the people in Tajikistan who'd been so utterly amazing to me. Um, and I wanted in some ways it to be a sort of historical record and tribute to the incredible um, village where I lived and worked. Um, but I then became a journalist full time and spent the last few years doing that. Now, as I said, many people in finance and business and government, when they find out about my background, have asked me, what the heck were you doing with a PhD in Tajik wedding rituals? And I have to admit that in the first few years of my time as a journalist at the FT, I was kind of an undercover anthropologist in the sense that I would sort of half tell people I had this background, but I'd often get an eye roll and I'd keep kind of fairly quiet about it um, because I did have a feeling that actually didn't really quite count. I was just stressed by the way that that's not the case today. But that really started to change for me in 2005 when, as Robert said, I got involved in covering the world of finance in the run up to the financial crisis. And there was a moment that I write about in my book, and in fact, I wrote about in my book, Fool's Gold, where essentially I went into an investment banking conference in the south of France in 2005. It was an event called the European Securitization Forum. And I walked into the hall surrounded by all these bankers, and I suddenly had this sense of, wow, I'm back in Tajikistan. And by that, I mean, if you look at what investment banking conferences are to the modern financial system, they're basically the equivalent of gigantic wedding rituals to Tajikistan. These are enormous ritualistic events that pull together a scattered tribe, if you like, and I use the word tribe very loosely because I know that it has a specific anthropological meaning. So I am using and abusing that word apologies, but it seems like the easiest way to talk about this. So they pull together a scattered network of people, allow them to reaffirm their social ties, allow them to essentially share and reinforce a collective worldview through all their rituals and symbols and conversations. And in that way, not just build a network, but build, if you like, a shared creation mythology that binds them together. That applies to Tajikistan and the wedding rituals as much as an investment banking conference. And when I sat in the hall, and try to think, okay, if I was using the same skills as I'd use in Tajikistan here in modern finance, what would I see? There were several key points that leapt out. The first was that the financiers at the time had a very strong sense of themselves as a distinctive tribe network set apart. They knew they spoke a language that no one else spoke, um, not Tajik, but financial gobbledygook, all the acronyms like CDO, CDS, et cetera, et cetera. And that gave them power. 
and it gave them a sense of being distinctive and connected, even though they were geographically separate. I used to joke that they were all members of a Bloomberg village in the sense they all had access to Bloomberg terminals, they all had the same data points they were watching, et cetera, et cetera. They had a very distinctive creation mythology, um, like every professional group, including journalists and academics. And their creation mythology was basically that the goal of financial innovation was to create liquefaction, perfectly liquid financial markets where every asset could be traded freely like water flowing and you'd get perfect prices that reflect risk. In retrospect, it was total baloney because just to give you two examples, um, the products they were creating with the goal of perfect liquefaction called CDOs um, were supposed to be so easy to trade that you had free market prices for everything and a free market-based accounting system. But in reality, they were making them so complex that most people couldn't trade them and they weren't actually priced in free markets. They were priced with rating agency models. Um, so they weren't genuine prices anyway. Or another example, the tools that they were using were supposed to spread financial risk across the system and make it safer. But those tools were so opaque that no one could see where the risk was going and it reconcentrated it back into the system. But at the time, no one could see these intellectual contradictions, including myself, because it was a tribe set apart with so few outsiders looking in. A third area of, if you like, problems in their creation mythology, and perhaps the most important, was that when I looked at their PowerPoint screens, um, what I noticed is that although they kept saying they were doing this financial craft for the sake of people, there weren't any faces in their PowerPoints. It was all Greek letters and equations and abstract um, squiggles. And that was very significant because it indicated that they had turned their mental map of finance into something which was quite detached from real life. It was very abstract. It was almost like a branch of Newtonian physics. Um, or to use another image, it was like philosophers sitting in Plato's cave, seeing shadows of reality flickering on the walls, but not actually experiencing um, shadow reality. And that mattered for two reasons. Firstly, it meant that they had almost no idea of the kind of potential damage that the products they were creating could do to wider society. But also they had no idea of how their own models of finance essentially didn't actually match up to reality on the ground. A bit like me in Tajikistan, they were using a, a bird's eye view um, to look at the system instead of the kind of worm's eye view, holistic view that anthropologists get and should feel very proud of championing. And to explain what I mean, there's a wonderful scene, if anyone's seen the movie, The Big Short, based on the novel by Michael Lewis, where a group of hedge fund traders go into a house of a pole dancer in Florida and realize that she has taken out all these subprime mortgages and they realize she can't possibly repay them. And they kind of have like holy shit moment. And the thing that's surprising is not that they realized how dangerous subprime is. It's a fact that so few other financiers had that perspective because so few of them were actually getting out and doing one-on-one -on -one anthropology and getting out to get a worm's eye view, seeing what was happening on the ground, realizing how their preconceptions about what, how real life was playing out might be as wrong as my initial preconceptions of Tajikistan. So on the basis of that, I went back and wrote a book 
so, um, so I wrote a series, didn't write a book yet. I wrote a series of articles warning about the looming risks in finance and how it was going to end in tears. And as Robert has kindly said, it turned out that I was correct. I got very lucky as well. I certainly didn't predict the magnitude of the financial crisis, although that label was slapped on me. Um, the media, like everyone else, likes to create creation myths and everything else. I've never pretended to predict the entire financial crisis, and I've never pretended that I was the only person who could see it. But I would argue that using that anthropology perspective, trying to, if you like, flip the lens and use the fact I jumped out of my fishbowl to then look back at my fishbowl, in many ways, was one of the things that helped me to see what was happening. And it really helped me, above all else, to see this issue of social silences, because in the financial world before 2008, what was happening in the world of credit derivatives, what was happening around the silos that were developing in finance, what was happening with the flaws of the creation mythology, all of that were social silences. Now, subsequently, I went to America where I covered a whole wide range of business spheres. Um, and what I noticed pretty soon was the same kind of tools and patterns that I'd seen in the financial sphere were playing out over and over again. Um, part of the issue, which I wrote about in my last book, The Silo Effect, was the degree to which different business sectors kept creating these silos, both structural silos in the sense of departments and mental silos in the sense of people segmenting the world in their minds, which made really clever people do really, really dumb things and take risks and fail to see opportunities. Um, in my last book, I talk about how groups like General Motors did crazy things with seatbelt standards, how the CIA mis misread the run-up to 9-11, et cetera, et cetera, is endemic to many parts of the business and, and business world and the public sector today. But more broadly, I also noticed that the same kind of patterns I'd seen in banking in terms of people unable to see the cultural assumptions that were shaping them to their detriment were playing out in other areas. I mean, the tech sector is a classic example of that, where essentially you have, once again, a group of people, there I said, a small tribe, who are in command or control of a language that almost no one else understands. I used to joke that the bankers spoke financial Latin. Um, and just like the priests and the medieval Catholic church, they would speak the Latin, the congregation, i.e. everyone else would sit there dumbly and just kind of accept what was going on because the blessings seemed to flow. And of course that was very dangerous. In many ways, I saw the same pattern in the tech sector in the sense that you had an elite who were in charge of a language in control of a language no one else understood. And if you started using one-on-one anthropology analysis for what was going on, you could see all these social silences around the tech world, um, all the ways that they were ignoring the fact that their perception of reality was very different from other people's, and all the ways that they were essentially blind to looming risks and a backlash. Um, I wrote a number of columns early on about the tech clash that was coming down the tracks and how and why um, techies could learn lessons from bankers and of course, many of them failed to do so completely. But I guess the real key of my story is that the type of tools that I've used in my journalistic career um, aren't just of use to media. I mean, one of the things I've tried to do in my book is to sketch out ways that they can and should be used in many areas of public life. I talk about the way that the first principle of anthropology, getting empathy for others, 
um, you know, could and should have helped to inform the battle against diseases like Ebola in West Africa. And how having that basic curiosity for other parts of the world, other cultures, could and should have helped to inform the Western governments in their own battles against COVID in the beginning of 2020. I mean, really simple lessons that had been learned in West Africa and in Asia about pandemics, like the need to combine behavioral science with social, with computer science and medical science to battle a pandemic, were ignored in the early days of COVID-19. Um, really simple lessons like the fact that if you're gonna promote mask usage, um, as anthropologists in Asia have shown, you need to recognize that the value of masks is not just in having a physical barrier to germs, but in also having a psychological prompt that you put on each day or occurs when you put the mask on each day to help you change your behavior and a signaling device symbolically to show that you are upholding the values of a wider group. Those aspects can also be very, very valuable in a pandemic. And that lesson was there to be learned um, in the West if they had looked at the experience of SARS in Asia or Ebola in West Africa, or even just looked at some of the writings of anthropologists. But you can also apply these lessons to many other sectors. I mean, if you're trying to make sense of how the political world has developed um, in recent years, um, using some anthropological analysis to look at, say, Donald Trump, um, helps you to understand the kind of really profound epistemological splits that have been occurring in American politics and why so many elites, including many journalists, got so much of the political world wrong in the run up to 2016. Um, I write in the book about the fact that one of my um, friends who comes from Trump country um, told me in the run up to 2016, if I wanted to understand Donald Trump, I needed to get out of the newsroom of a New York journalist, and I was living in America at the time, and go to a wrestling match. Um, the reason is that when you get a worm's eye view of a wrestling match, um, you realize, firstly, that so much of Donald Trump's appeal and the performative style that he used to connect with voters was essentially borrowed from the language and traditions and rituals of wrestling matches. No accident, because um, Donald Trump had spent many years doing wrestling on television. In fact, that was how many non-elite voters knew him best, not through The Apprentice. And a wrestling match has a performative style which is all about ritualized aggression. It's all about name calling. It's all about the sense of manufactured conflict and resolution that the audience sort of knows as they cheer and are whipped along that is kind of fake, but kind of not fake. And that was kind of transposed almost lock, stock and barrel into how Donald Trump conducted his um, political campaigns. And the thing that was fascinating was that the elites who tend not to go to wrestling matches and tend to assume that words and language expressed sequentially in thoughts are the main or at least the most valuable way of communicating, didn't kind of get it because they didn't really recognize the difference of what was going on. They hadn't done, if you like, the one-on-one anthropology of getting out and trying to see a different point of view. Of course, many of Donald Trump's voters totally got it, and they sort of took what he said seriously, but not literally, to use a common tag. So anthropology can help people make sense of political culture. But last but not least, it can also make sense of the corporate world. And I turn to this last but not least because I know that for many anthropologists, the idea of using 
anthropology tools in a corporate setting is pretty potentially controversial because it invokes ideas of 19th century imperialism. There is a power imbalance. The idea of helping powerful um, institutions in any context, public or private, um, surveil the citizens, sell things, um, trade things, do anything like that, it's controversial. I accept that. And I totally respect those anthropologists who say, you know what, I can see that this kind of perspective and insight can be useful. I don't want to be part of that. For my part, though, I happen to think that actually there is a role for anthropology in business, um, particularly if it's done in a mindful way, in an ethical way. And I tell a number of stories in my books about the ways that anthropology can help to inform business. Um, most obviously, it can be used to help businesses understand consumers better and to recognize a really obvious point, but one that's almost always forgotten by powerful business leaders, which is just because it's my way of thinking, it's not necessarily the, same, the way of everyone else's thinking. Um, you know, I explain how a number of consumer groups, tech groups, and others have used anthropologists to look at what their consumers are thinking, doing, expecting, etc. You might say that's grubby because it just helps companies exploit people more. Or you might say, actually, in a world where we don't benefit if tech products are all designed by 25-year-old white guys sitting in Silicon Valley, bringing anthropologists into the mix can create a consumer culture that's richer, deeper, more nuanced. And I tell the story of KitKat in Japan in the book as well, really to illustrate another point, which is that culture doesn't exist as a fixed box. Um, you can't just stack it up um, you know, in some kind of value system. You can't sit there and assume it's valid. Um, cultures are a spectrum of difference and they're moving and blending and changing in a way that's glorious and can be exciting. And Kit Kat started life as a chocolate biscuit in Britain, very British, got taken to Japan, got picked up by Japanese teenagers as a kind of good luck token because the word kitoketsu sounds like Kit Kat in Japanese. And the um, then Swiss owners of Kit Kat, Nestle, lent into that and used that kitoketsu tag to start marketing it as a kind of prayer token device. And within a few years, not only had it become so popular, but it had taken on board so many Japanese flavors that the chocolate biscuit had actually become a symbol of Japanese-ness, not Britishness. Um, it was bought by tourists. And then it got re-imported, or now it is re-imported back into Britain as a Japanese green tea matcha Kit Kat. And actually, ironically, that's made in German factories. So, if you're looking at Kit Kats today in Britain, matcha green tea Kit Kats in Britain, you know, is it British, Japanese, German, or Swiss? You know, it's all of them. And in many ways, an example of how a sort of anthropological sensibility can be used for good in business to be creative and innovative and break down boundaries and recognize that cultures can change. Um, I often joke, I only wish that more politicians would embrace a Kit Kat vision of um, politics. But the other point is that anthropology can be used to also flip the lens and help businesses look inside of themselves. I talk in the book about the story of General Motors and how they've used anthropologists to help managers understand that quite often the things they think about their workers are totally wrong. But equally, and perhaps most importantly, because this is the area where it's not happened very much, 
anthropology could and should be used by managers and people in positions of power to flip the lens on themselves. Just as it would have been very beneficial for more bankers back in 2005, when I was looking at the ritualistic investment banking conferences come weddings, to actually use an anthropological sensibility to look at themselves, they might not have got so mad with the financial crisis. So too techies in Silicon Valley, so too corporate leaders, so could leaders of any stripe benefit by asking anthropologists to study themselves, order their shortcomings and be willing to listen to what they're missing. Which brings me to my last point, which is why I think anthropology is so powerful now. And there's really two reasons. One is the fact that COVID-19 in many ways has given the world a natural taste of anthropology. In a sense, it's been the biggest culture shock that many people have experienced in their lives. Every single person who's been forced into lockdown suddenly has been forced into a taste of culture shock. They've been forced in a sense to reassess all of the patterns and rituals and rhythms of their daily lives and social groups they once took for granted and didn't think about. And that has been terrifying, but it also creates an opportunity or the kind of trigger mechanism that's at the very heart of anthropology, which is when you have a bit of culture shock, when you're forced to suddenly embrace the idea that what you took for granted may not be universal and natural, when you're forced to reassess your life, there can be the possibility of change, particularly if, and if is the crucial word there, crucial word here, if you're willing to reflect and look around the world for fresh inspiration, which of course is what anthropology can offer. But the second reason is to do with technology. We live in an era when we are drowning in reverence for the digital, drowning in reverence for artificial intelligence, AI. And in many ways, AI is an incredible tool. And in many ways, our digital revolution is exciting. But the reality is that people often think the digital revolution is somehow culture-free. They think the big data sets are infallible, that AI is almost magical in its abilities. It's not. Um, for the most part, AI, big data sets, work by hoovering up data from the very recent past, looking for correlations and projecting it into the future. But big data sets are only as good as the data they collect. They're bounded, like so many of the intellectual tools we use today, whether that's economic models, whether that's balance sheets or big data sets. And AI doesn't occur out of a cultural context. It's created by humans. The models are designed by humans. They're interpreted by humans and they're essentially implemented within human cultural frameworks. And all of that requires cultural analysis to be effective. Or to put it another way, if we look at the world and look at where things have gone wrong in recent years, so often it's because people have been using tunnel vision tools like economic models or balance sheets or AI big data sets without a sense of wider context. There's been tunnel vision, not lateral vision. And that's one of the things that anthropology can really offer. And to understand why, um, one of my favorite little encounters has occurred in recent months while I've been going around giving talks about my book occurred actually at an AI conference. And after the conference, someone pointed out 
that AI platforms these days have done all manner of amazing things. They can scan financial markets, they can scan medical records, they can scan, you know, engineering problems, they can solve, you know, beat humans at Go, you name it. One thing no AI platform has ever really done well is to tell a good joke. And the reason is that jokes are partly a function of our propensity to be tribal or to have social networks. You have to be in a network to get a joke. If you're not, you don't get the joke. That's kind of hard for AI platforms to track. But also jokes operate by playing off the contradictory levels of our culture and above all, social silences. That's hard for big data sets to track because they track noise for the most part. So as long as we have jokes, there will be need for not just AI, but a second type of AI, anthropology intelligence, to give us the appreciation of cultural context, to give us lateral vision in a world of tunnel vision, and above all, I would argue, to remind everybody, including but not restricted to corporate, political, and economic leaders, what it really means to be human. So thank you for listening. Okay, so Julian, thank you. Um, that was so elegant um, and so fluent. It's easy to understand or easier to understand how it has been possible for you decade after decade to um, publish um, weekly columns of some 900 words, very elegantly crafted, as I said, week after week after week. Very impressive. Um, and just on this last point that you made, we now have three um, meanings of the acronym AI. One of them is artificial intelligence. The second one is augmented intelligence. And the third one is your anthropological intelligence. Um, you gave uh, emphasis towards the end on the power of anthropology in helping uh, people involved in, in business, in industry, in the corporate life, um, and understand the broad context in which they are operating. And that leads then directly into the work of um, our discussant, Deborah Rowland, who is trained in anthropology, also trained uh, like Gillian at Cambridge. But for the past three decades, she's worked with senior management in large corporations, helping to lead complex organizational change, including. Uh, companies such as Shell, such as Gucci Group, BBC Worldwide, PepsiCo. She's currently working with a major um, FTSE aerospace company as it embraces electrification and post-COVID disruption. Um, she's the author of several books, the most recent one being um, uh, titled Still Moving Field Guide, Still Moving Field Guide, Change Vitality, at your fingertips, published in 2020. She founded and she runs her own advisory firm, which is called Still Moving. If you think about it, that's a very nice pun for the name of a company, Still Moving. So Deborah, over to you. Thank you very much, Robert. Um, thank you to both Robert and Gillian for uh, inviting me to come in and be a, a discussant, which, as I understand it, is to both respond, Gillian, to your um, great um, address. Um, I've read your book as well this year, but also to offer some of my own insights as well. 
So we really are sort of getting the drumbeat for anthropology, I think, um, in this in this lecture. But just a few things I'd like to just um, observe, really. Um, I've just you know, written down here your three points, Gillian, about um, empathy, you know, number one. And I always recall that the uh, stated purpose of anthropology is to make the world safe for human difference how to make the world safe for human difference. And I, I always sort of, you know, it sounds a very noble <laughs> purpose of a, of a social science, but I think that's the, the cornerstone of what empathy is all about. Um, the second comment you talk about self-awareness, it actually helps you make the familiar strange. So step back and, and look at uh, yourself too. Um, and I, I often use when I, in my work with corporates, there's this great film, if you just Google it on YouTube called The Overview Effect. And it's about the, the group of astronauts, I can't remember which Apollo mission it was now, but I've just written it down because your talk reminded me of it, where they, um, and they, I think they had a philosopher on board, I can't remember exactly who went up to the moon, but they were interviewing them when they came back, and they thought their mission was to go and see what the moon was like. But it was only when they were on the moon and they looked back at Earth, they got this startling jolt of a new perception of, of where they'd come from. So this whole notion of you need to get out of your own um, milieu, your own habitat, in order to increase self-awareness. And one of the companies I work with, actually, the biggest thing that sparked corporate transformation was not, oh, my goodness, the competition are doing this or you know, look at our financials. But they went out and they did what was called foraging. Let's go out and visit systems, part of the world, other corporates that already in some way um, in, in, in a sense, have the future keys to where we need to go to. But again, they went out and guess what? When they were in the other organizations, it helped increase their self-awareness. So this capacity to have self-scrutiny is a real cornerstone, not just of anthropology, but also um, corporate renewal as well. I love your concept of the social silences. Um, in fact, the, the working title for my next book is called Leading What You Cannot See. Um, the number one skill of great change leaders, and I'll go on to say a little bit more about this later, is what's called tuning into the system, seeing beneath um, the obvious data into looking at causal patterns. Um, so leading what you cannot see. Um, I was trained in group relations at the Tavistock Institute. So one of the things I love about anthropology is this capacity to show up with, as you say, um, Gillian, this, this complete curiosity. But I was trained there to, can you show up to a situation without memory, desire, or judgment? Quite a tall order, if you think about it, if I'm going to work with an executive team, oh gosh, here we go again, kind of thing. But can you show up without memory, desire, or judgment? And I, and I just love that, 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 that acute capacity to, in a sense, empty yourself to be prepared for the new, because unless you can be prepared for the new, you'll repeat the old routine. You get what you project. So I think anthropology, in a way, you know, makes you aware of what your projections might be. Um, and then you, can, you can't do change unless you do that. The final thing I'll say before I go on to, to talk about what I've also encountered, you didn't talk about the worm's eye view compared to the bird's eye view. I'll never forget when I was working, I actually worked at PepsiCo. I was based in the US. And um, it was in the era where PepsiCo owned the restaurants, fast food chains like Pizza Hut and Kentucky Fried Chicken. And I went out and there was a key competency that was in the so-called competency profile of great leaders there. And it was called roaching. 
your capacity to be a roach. I thought, who wants to have cockroaches in a KFC restaurant? Um, health and safety issues. But it's literally, um, it, it was shown in statistical analysis that what differentiated great change leaders from the average was the capacity to get right down on the ground, to go into the restaurant. Imagine you are a cockroach and look up. What do you see? Where's the footfall? Is it dirty? What's going on? What times of day is it more busy than others? Um, and that directly created economic value by the capacity, and we called it roaching. <laughs> so I thought I'll offer roaching as, a, as another example of what uh, you call the, the worm's eye view. But let me just say just a few things, um, a bit about myself, and then I'll, I'll go on to talk about what I've found, the value of anthropology. And I, I've tried to um, relate it to the field of economics as well, where I think the crossover between anthropology and economics might be. But um, the first thing, um, and which is why I was delighted by Robert and um, Gillian invited me in, was I love the intersections of things, the boundaries. Um, and I got very frustrated at school um, in A-levels. I could not do, I was not allowed to do maths and English. I said, well, why not? You know, I did maths O-level really early. I was really geeky at stats and maths, but it doesn't fit the curriculum. You can't do <laughs> both. So I actually did French instead. So I did English, Latin and French at, at, at A-level. But I always remember, why couldn't I have done maths with English? You know, this, this, the boundaries we put between disciplines I encountered at a very early age. Uh, my best mate at Cambridge was an economist, and we'd have long chats into the night about how anthropology and um, economics could intersect. Um, and I then actually went into to advertising. Gillian, you found yourself in journalism. I thought, what do I do with my anthropology? And I found myself um, in, in advertising. But I always remember one of my interviews, it was with uh, Saatchi and Saatchi, a big ad agency in the 80s. And I remember at this hotel, I was on the, um, the milk round being interviewed and they just gave me a Rolex watch and said, right, how would you sell this Rolex watch? And I think they're expecting me a bit to look at, you know, I don't know what the, the unit cost of it was or the margin and the pricing and everything, because it's obviously a very expensive watch. But I talked about the um, cultural interpretation of time and status. Um, and they, well, they weren't expecting that whatsoever. Um, anyway, uh, long and short of it was I, I, I went into advertising, but then I was got, got much more interested in organizational behavior and corporate transformation. And my main, I guess, intellectual influencer has been the Santa Fe Institute of Complexity. And they study complex adaptive systems. And I love it. Talk about an example of interdisciplinary value to the world. They have biologists, philosophers, hopefully anthropologists, economics as, economists as well. But the study of a complex adaptive system, it's complex because there are many agents involved. It's adaptive because it's constantly trying to adjust to the external environment. And it's a system because it has a shared purpose. It's bounded by you know, a, a sense. And I would contend that whether it's a human institution, be it a family, you talk about the tribes, Gillian, corporations, or even looking at economic systems, they are all complex adaptive systems. And that has really influenced how I have addressed the field of change. I believe anthropology and um, economics shares many, many similarities. So I have devoted my professional career, Robert, as you said, to the study of um, large complex change, not just in corporations. I've also done work in NGOs, societal transformation, but, um, but mainly in corporates, which, of course, are a key um, economic agent. So my mission really is to how can we bring or facilitate um, more responsible change in today's world? 
um, in my book, Still Moving, I write about, I think I found the statistic that um, every year, $40 billion is spent on so-called change or change management. And the adage, of course, is that 75% of change efforts fail. What a waste of money. What a waste of money. Where does that money go? And I've always wanted to find out what do the 25% do that makes the difference? How come they're successful? And if we can just find out what the 25% do, we would save a lot of money. So by responsible, I really mean change that is towards um, a wise destination. I love the book Donut Economics. Some of you might have read it. Um, Kate Raworth, I think, who's written the book about how big is big and you know how, how big do we need to grow. Um, it takes least effort. A lot of effort goes into change management. And I strongly believe that change can be led in more effortless ways. So least effort, maximum gain. And finally, change that is sustaining. So it has an energy to it where you don't have to go through these cycles of big, big restructuring. Everybody gets, you know, stressed. Then we go back to normal and then, oh, another big restructuring. And then we all go back to normal. That, again, is irresponsible in terms of the consequences on people's lives. So what I'm going to share in the remaining, I think, 10 minutes um, is a rapid overview of what I have learned um, can really stimulate this sustainable, responsible and ongoing transformation. And I do believe that there are crossovers between the anthropology associated with those findings and also um, in, in the world of economics. I won't bore you with the details now about uh, my research methodology, but the long and the short of it is um, I've now interviewed over the two decades, four rounds of global research, 500 leaders through behavioral event interviewing. It's not quite like going out to, to Tajik, Gillian, but it's doing, um, in-depth ethnographic narratives of a corporate story of change. It's not a tick box survey where you get sort of socially constructed, oh, I think I do change like this. We rigorously analyze how do leaders go about change to tell me a story. Um, and those transcripts are then coded for certain behaviors or approaches to change. Um, and we have very success criteria as well as to, you know, in high magnitude change that is successful. What is present? We do variance analysis. So I can do both the quant and the qual, you know, immerse myself in one particular story, but then step back, I guess, to look at the big data, Gillian, um, in this. And um, I'm supervised in this by an amazing statistician. Um, and also a gifted out psychotherapist. So I really try to combine, you know, the two different disciplines here. So there's four big messages that I'd like to share now in terms of what does make a difference in a successful corporate, but I would say more whole system transformation. The first finding, which is really the essence of, of still moving. And in fact, Julian, the subtitle is how to lead mindful change. You talked about how can anthropologists perhaps help corporations do things in a wiser way, in more sort of intentional um, way, um, is um, a finding I call uh, being before doing. Being before doing. So when leaders can tune into and regulate their inner emotional and mental response to experience, they can lead change far more effectively. They got to, they get off what's called autopilot reactivity um, and say, stop, notice what's really going on here. My presence, my the quality of my awareness drives the quality of my outer behavior. So this capacity to tune into the system, to free oneself of one's own story and projection 
really made a huge difference. So this you can't change what you don't notice. So the starting point for change is awareness and particularly self-awareness. So a lot of my work with corporations is how can one raise the level of self-consciousness? And that can be at the meta level. It's not just at the individual level, but at the systemic level as well. Um, so um, one way of doing this, by the way, um, there's this wonderful, there's two of them that have been written up. One's called Car Launch um, and one is called Oil Change. And they're called Learning Histories. Um, written, I think, um, George Roth and Art Kleiner, one is an anthropologist, and I believe one is an um, economics journalist as well. So this is anthropology um, and economics combining beautifully. But basically, it's a jointly held story or narrative of a change process told through the eyes of all the different stakeholders. So in the middle of the learning history, you have what happened. And then in the margins, you put, well, this is what the unions that's what they came out of the meeting thinking. Well, this is what the elite came out of the, <laughs> the, 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 um, the meeting. So the, all of the different social constructions of what happened and the variety of that gets jointly told and then spread through the corporation. Talk about a great way to sort of, you know, hold up the mirror. And by tuning into the system to see those multiple interpretations of reality, um, it led to very, very successful transformations. So I've just got a, a question here to, um, I guess, the all of the economic models um, that you do in the economics profession is to how can you model in a way rich feedback loops? Rich feedback loops are the oxygen of transformation. You know, you can't change unless you're noticing something. So I don't know what rich feedback loops would look like um, in the field of economics, but that would be my question. Um, the second finding, so the first thing is being before doing, noticing what's going on inside oneself or the system and how, what, what glasses do you use to see the world? Um, if you don't take them off and clear them up a bit, you will repeat the world. So it's really, really important to do that. Um, the second finding I call make a disturbance your friend. So no change comes when you're comfortable. Discomfort sort of accompanies big change. Change always comes with a price, not just a prize. I always find that corporate leaders overemphasize the price. If only we could do this, you know, we get all of these more customers or whatever, as opposed to the cost. Every change comes with, with a cost. So I'm very interested um, anthropologically with how do cultures, um, where do they give a place to difficulty or what's dangerous, what's taboo? This wonderful anthropologist, Mary Douglas, has written this book. I think it's called Purity and Danger. Gillian, I can't quite remember now. But it's this book that positively connotes every culture has to somehow talk about what's difficult or embarrassing or squirmy or shameful. Um, but the best change leaders don't hide difficulty or disturbance. In a way, they make difficulty a target marker because where there's disturbance, there's the energy for resolution and to do something else, to do something um, different. So how can you make disturbance your friend? Any perturbation in a complex system is an opportunity for transformation. So don't shy away from it. Um, how can that be embraced? Um, I worked with Nokia once, the director of change at Nokia, and they had failure parties. Um, so they had the whole spark of the culture of innovation was the celebration of people who took risk, did something different or dangerous, and didn't quite turn out as expected. And rather than, oh, let's put that under the shelf here, let's actually celebrate that because that's what brings um, learning. 
Um, there's an, a notion in, in anthropology is called deviant or deviant behavior. How can you positively connote what's dangerous or difficult? Now, again, I don't know what this would look like in the field of economics, but it's curious about how when difficulty or disturbance or disruption occurs, how can that be somehow given a place? Otherwise, one gets panic buying at the petrol pumps. <laughs> so there's something here about how can difficulty or, or danger be given a place, have rituals or ceremonies around it. It's really, really important because if you can't do that well, you won't get change. People will get scared and frightened and the amygdala in the brain will um, sort of catalyze the stress response. So you won't approach difficulty, you'll run away from it. Third main finding um, is what I talk about the approach to change now being one of what I call a more emergent approach to change. Classic ways of doing change was top-down, programmatic, assuming linearity, predictability. If we do this restructure, um, if we put out this new statement of vision and values, we'll get a new culture or we will make cost savings. It's very, and it's assuming rationality, I guess, um, in human behavior. Great book written by Stephen Johnson, I think 1999 called Emergence. Um, but basically emergence is a property of complex adaptive systems. It's where novelty or where the unfolding nature of the world um, can be naturally harnessed. Great change leaders can harness the natural innate energy of a system to keep adapting to keep changing rather than having a central change management unit come in. If you look at the living world, how blocks, uh, how birds fly in formation and they can adapt, but they don't have a chief executive bird. Fascinating, if you Google Viking laws, over four centuries, what a successful trading nation the Vikings were, went to all the corners of the earth. They had four rules that governed their society. So emergent, you can't, it's not just letting your letter all go. When you work with emergent change, you have a loose intention and then a few level micro rules that govern the micro level behavior that will somehow produce global patterns that are constructive. There are four laws through which the Vikings did all of their trading. Uh, one was called be a good merchant. I think one was called keep your camp tidy. Now we all know about the rape and pillage. But anyway, <laughs> but I find it fascinating how you don't have to over-engineer a change program, have an intention, then have a few hard rules that influence the behavior that you want to see. And then as Stephen Johnson puts it, press play and see what happens. And then you'll, and in Santa Fe Institute, they do all kinds of computer modeling with hard rules, having intentionality. Now, I'm sure in all of your statistical models in, in economics, um, you have these, um, these rules as well. But what absolutely fascinated me, I think it was a, another journalist who I love, um, Gillian, Tim, but Matthew Saeed, I don't if anybody knows him, he writes for The Times. And he has correlated trust in others with GDP. So apparently, if there's um, societies that have low trust in others, that's correlated with low GDP. And he talks about the difference between South Italy and North Italy and, and Colombia. But I find it fascinating whether in any of your economic modeling, do you have a more social construct like trust in how you can predict um, financial um, or productivity and outcomes? Final um, message, and then I'll shut up, because I know that we want to have space for, for Q&A. Um, is that there are four underlying systemic forces that really govern whether systems can either get stuck or flow with ease. And they are time, belonging, place, and exchange. So 
Gillian, you've talked about time in terms of creation myths or ancestors. And I know that time has a huge force on people's behavior and whether or not you can you know, model um, in economics the effect of time or in, even in the anticipated future and how that influences behavior. Uh, belonging, which is all about, you talk about tribal affiliations um, there, Gillian. So, you know, sometimes we do dumb things because we're very loyal to a certain conscience group. I don't know what that might look like. Um, place is all about hierarchy and who sits where and what factors weigh, weigh more than others. And of course, exchange, since Malinowski and Marcel, is it Marcel Mouse wrote the book, you know, The Gift. Um, so in any um, change process, there's always a give and a get, people who benefit and people who have to pay the price. So my current research I'm doing this year is into how leaders can explore time, belonging, place and exchange and how they exert this kind of invisible influence on weather systems and how they can flourish or not. Um, I'll shut up now. I've probably gone on a bit longer than I should have done, but I think we've still got um, time for Q&A. So I hope that's helped a bit in, the, in how an anthropologist has applied um, her craft to corporate change. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Um, just before um, opening to Q&A, um, and perhaps um, Gillian wants to um, comment on um, what Deborah said, but just before that, I wanted to mention that there is at least one anthropologist at LSE, namely the head of the anthropology department, Laura Baer, who has been working in, a, in broadly similar kinds of fields as uh, Gillian and Deborah. That is to say, she has worked for some time with the Bank of England, uh, going out up and down the country with others to understand, to try and collect and understand the narratives that people in local government, people in businesses uh, make about what's happening to them and then bringing these narratives um, back into the Bank of England and helping um, the Monetary Policy Committee in particular to formulate monetary policy. So that is an anthropologist on the ground collecting narratives and feeding them back. And the second thing that uh, Laura has been doing is working with a, a subcommittee of SAGE on the response to COVID. And this has taken, as you can imagine, a great deal of time. Um, so uh, the point is simply that um, there is work in the LSE anthropology department, which connects up with um, the work of Gillian and Deborah. So, um, now, uh, are there questions, or, or first of all, Gillian, would you like to make any comments on uh, what uh, Deborah argued? Well, no, I'll simply say I salute um, the work of Laura very strongly, and I should have mentioned her, so thank you for reminding me of that. And I also salute the work of Deborah as well. Um, and I guess the last thing I would, you know, would say is simply this, you know, anthropology's power is it provides a kind of holistic sense of context, gives lateral vision in a world of tunnel vision. And for that reason, I often say to people, you know, I'm not saying that anthropology gives you a magic wand that explains the world, but anthropology plus economics, anthropology plus finance, plus business studies, plus law or medicine, that's a really powerful combination. It's not always easy to do because academic institutions tend to be very fragmented and fractured. Um, People are often, you know, wary of working across institutional and academic boundaries. Um, but that kind of work really is a way to use anthropology in a very powerful way, as Laura has shown. Okay, 
just before we open it up, let me mention, um, uh, Deborah mentioned um, cockroaches or roaching and cockroaches. And this reminded me of a wonderful short dystopian novel by Ian McEwan called Metamorphosis uh, and talk about flipping, flipping the lens, um, stepping outside in this case of human existence um, into the existence of a cockroach or rather cockroaches who metamorphize and become the British cabinet, including the prime minister is a metamorphized um, cockroach Gillian uh, said, to understand power, you must understand money. And the cockroaches start to apply an economic doctrine in Britain um, from the cabinet, um, which totally flips um, the whole operation of money flows in the economy, uh, claiming that this will generate mass prosperity. But in fact, they know, they know very well that this will bring the destruction of the British economy, and that will mean lots and lots of food for the cockroaches for when they metamorphize back from humans and the prime minister and the cabinet into cockroaches. It's, it's a very, very strange, but very imaginative book. And it, it gives a sort of new take on, on the role of anthropology. Um, so are there questions coming from uh, Zoom? I have to emphasize that the questions will only come from Zoom. Okay, so here's one from Johannes Bay, um, an LSE student from Germany and New Zealand. Well, if he's from New Zealand, he can't be all bad. I'm from New Zealand. Um, so the question for Gillian Tett, what constitutes an effective mode of disseminating and expressing anthropological knowledge? What constitutes an effective mode of disseminating and expressing anthropological knowledge and how might anthropology design more meaningful interfaces with other contexts such as economics? A well, very powerful question. Yeah, anthropologists are often quite ill-placed to hustle to get their ideas out. Um, that's partly because the type of character and personality who devotes their life to anthropology is often well suited for humbly observing others and patiently observing others, but doesn't always want to hustle themselves into the limelight and seize a, seize a microphone. Um, and also anthropology is a discipline which celebrates the fact that life exists in shades of gray, because life does exist in shades of gray with complexity and subtlety. Um, the problem is that people communicate usually in black and white. So, the challenge for anthropologists is to try and boil their idea, ideas down, hustle to get them into the mainstream. And often anthropologists are so cynical about money and power because they study it, that they don't like dealing with money and power. Um, and to make the compromises involved in trying to communicate messages. It's not easy. Um, you know, using multimedia approaches, using, story, using storytelling, which is basically one-on-one -on -one journalism can help a lot. But another idea that can be used in anthropology to try and communicate, which is kind of um, what I often tell journalists to do in a time of great political fracture and tribalism in how we consume information, is to think about the domino theory, not in the sense of dominoes toppling over, but in the sense of if you take a domino piece, you have two numbers. And the game is to match one half of the domino piece with someone else's half of a number. But once you've matched that number, the other number can be quite different. And effective journalistic writing, like academic writing, hooks your audience in by tapping into something they know, 
and then takes them somewhere completely different. So sometimes when people ask me about my anthropology, you know, I talk first about the fact that I went to Tajikistan and it looks kind of, you know, exotic to Western eyes. And that kind of confirms their idea of Indiana Jones. But then I say, but by the way, the stuff I learned there is just as relevant to understanding investment bankers or Washington or Silicon Valley. And that's what I mean by the domino theory. And I think anthropologists couldn't show you that more. And last quick thought is that um, platforms like Sapiens, um, the online magazine, platforms like The Conversation are brilliant places for people to cut their teeth talking to the wider public and getting the message out. What is the first one you mentioned? Sapiens, S-A-P-I-E-N-S. NS. It's an American um, pub, American website. It's brilliant. So you mentioned two, Sapiens and con the Conversation. And the other one is The Conversation. Mm -hmm. Can I just say as well, Gillian, you spoke at Epic um, earlier this year as well. I think they yeah, are also right. a forum, aren't they, for disseminating yeah. anthropological in, in the corporate life. But I, I just quickly, I did a talk at the University of Queensland a couple of months ago to anthropology graduates. They're all saying, how can we get our ideas more out in the world? And I think a big subject, Julian, was this thing about, can we get over ourselves a bit? Um, but the whole conversation was about, we don't even have to necessarily use the A word. It's a question of, of talking about curiosity or awareness or sense-making. And so it, it, it's trying to get access, isn't it, in a way where you don't necessarily um, look, I, I call it the perceived weirdness index. If the PWI is too high, you might get a CEO of a company, you know, run a mile. So you have to sort of you know, judge how can you get that hook without appearing so strange to other people as well. And yeah, this no, site it, that you mentioned, is, is it called EPIC? Epic, Epic, Ethnographic yeah. Praxis in Context. Um, I'd, again, I'd urge people to look at three websites, Epic, E-P-I-C, Ethnographic Praxis in Context. It's called, um, horrible name, um, Sapiens, li not like the Yuval Hariri book, but it's a different, it's a website, and The Conversation. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. I'm okay. going to go in a Any couple more? of minutes. It's probably going to be the last question, sadly, I'm afraid. Yes. Thank you for the insights. This is Kenneth Canis, an LSE student, also a journalist from Hong Kong. Question for Gillian. When journalists produce news stories, we have world airtime, sorry, word and airtime limit. Um, how many readers these days prefer short reads, short documentaries? Do you feel sometimes some extensive details and truth found out through the anthropological approach are destined to be buried due to the limitations in the current journalism world? Short answer is yes, yes, almost always. And that's part of the compromise you have to make. You know, life is a series of trade-offs. If you want to reach a wide audience, you're probably going to have to compromise. Um, if you want to write long, loving, deeply subtle, detailed monographs, they're probably going to be read by a smaller audience. There is place for both in the world. You know, I'm very proud of the PhD I wrote. Well, not that proud, but, you know, I'm, I'm pleased with the PhD I wrote, which was long and complex and probably almost no one's read. Um, but I'm also pleased with the, the short columns I've done, which are much more about compromise. And um, I guess one thing I'd say, though, is also in some ways the media has gone into a more shallow, um, one-dimensional type of style of delivery. Um, it tends to be very targeted to audiences and people's attention spans have shrunk in some formats. But 
I also have great faith that actually the human condition always finds ways to absorb content in different ways. Um, content creation is higher today than it's ever been. And one of the new vehicles for thoughtful, subtle content creation and consumption are podcasts. So podcasts are really interesting in terms of how they offer a chance to have thoughtful chats. Another one is the fact you've got these new platforms coming up like the conversation the sapiens. And then last but not least, there is still demand for long form journalism. But yep, being a journalist involves one set of compromises. Being an anthropologist involves another. The best element in life or best way to live life, I think, which is with checks and balances. And the Financial Times does a good job with a moderately long form journalism in, in the form of the Big Read page, the daily Big Read page. Also, the New York Times International Edition does uh, long form articles. I mean, not long as long as Gillian's thesis, but still longer than um, 900 word, much longer than 900 word columns. Yep, it's out there. Yeah. Well, listen, Robert, thank you so much. And Deborah, thank you so much as well yeah. for your really thoughtful comments. I'm really grateful to you guys for hosting me. Um, so yeah. thank you. Good, good. Thanks very much. Thanks. And thank you to everyone for watching and thanks for your interest.